And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and if you do have a hard copy of the notes, the text of Scripture is on the back, I believe, um, and you can follow along that way as well. Uh, John chapter 2, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 2, verse 1, and my goal today is to cover uh, verses 1 through 11, and next Sunday we're going to pick up in verse 12 of John 2. Uh, right where we leave off today and continue working through the Gospel of John. And I invite you to join us as we continue uh, this amazing journey uh, that we have been on through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20 and verse uh, 31, the Apostle John, who writes this Gospel, states his purpose for writing everything that he writes in this Gospel saying, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Everyone believes in something, even if what they believe in is themselves. But John wants all of us to believe in Jesus Christ so that we can have life precious life in his name. And that's why he writes this gospel of John containing a record of the things that he witnessed Jesus saying and doing when Jesus was on the earth. And just from our study of John chapter 1 in recent weeks, we have learned that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Word of God, that he is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have learned that Jesus is God come down to earth from heaven and that he took on human flesh and dwelt among us and displayed his glory amongst us while he was here. We saw last week how Jesus gathered his first five followers to himself, and that's right where we're going to pick up in the narrative today in John 2. Before we get into our passage uh, for today, though, uh, let me just say one thing to set the stage for the miracle that we're going to witness in this passage. One of the great Old Testament promises associated with the future coming of God's Messiah and messianic kingdom is the abundance of wine. During that future time, the prophet Joel says in Joel 2.24, the vats will overflow with new wine. Speaking of that very time, Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 25.6, and I quote, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. According to Jeremiah 31.12, during that time, 
And I quote, the people will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil. The prophet Joel says in Joel 3.18, and in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. One of the big takeaways for the Jews who read these promises was this. When the Messiah comes, no one will be running out of wine, for it will be in abundant supply. And I start with this because at this point of John's gospel, the Messiah is on earth and he is about to launch into his public ministry. In our passage today, he finds himself at a wedding banquet and guess what? They run out of wine. What Jesus does when that happens ends up revealing volumes about him and about his glory and teaches us much about our Savior that I think can encourage our hearts on this Easter Sunday. Ultimately, there are four acts, as you'll see on your notes, four acts of Jesus in this story that manifest his glory as a Messiah who is worthy of our trust. Four acts of Jesus that we will observe in the text this morning wherein he displays his glory and shows himself to be so worthy of our love and our trust. And the first of these acts, let's word it this way, he attends a wedding that he was invited to. He attends a wedding that he was invited to. Imagine being able to invite Jesus to your wedding. Well, observe what the text says in verses 1 and 2. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. By being here at this wedding feast, Jesus, I think, is showing hearty approval for the institution of marriage, which he affirms in other places of the Gospels also. When Jesus, for example, was asked a question about marriage later in his ministry, he said in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, and I quote, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. The Bible teaches us that God is the creator of marriage, which means then that the institution of marriage is his intellectual property and not ours. It's his to define and regulate, not ours. We also learn in the Bible that the earthly institution of marriage is intended to serve as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church of his redeemed ones, which means then that our earthly institution of marriage is really all about pointing to Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus was asked early in his ministry, why his disciples didn't fast. 
He answered in Mark chapter 2, verse 19, and said these words, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast. Just from his language there, it's clear that Jesus thought of himself as a groom coming to earth in search of his bride. And again, we're taught in the Bible that the church of redeemed ones is his bride. In Revelation chapter 19, you might want to write this reference down, Revelation 19 verses 7 through 9, we see the marriage supper, the marriage banquet that in a future day will be enjoyed between Christ and his people. So it's not surprising that Christ would feel that attending a wedding on this occasion in John 2 was a worthy investment of his time, nor is it surprising that he would make a wedding the venue for his very first miracle. Now, I should say that back in this day, weddings were configured a little differently than they are today. Typically, a man and a woman would say their vows to one another and become betrothed to one another. Then they would live apart for a few months after that while the groom uh, got set up and got his home ready for his bride. And at the end of that betrothal period, the groom would come with great fanfare to the bride's house with his wedding party and take the bride from her parents' home and bring her into his own Home, And it is then that the wedding feasting would start and last typically for a whole week, seven days of wedding feasting. It was not unusual on these occasions for the whole town to be invited to these wedding feasts, including one's enemies in the town. As for those who were invited, the commentator Edward Clink tells us, And I quote, even people who disliked the wedding family would be obliged to attend the wedding since refusing to attend was socially inappropriate. So imagine the pressure that you would feel at your own wedding when even people who don't like you are there. As for providing meals for everyone for this whole week of feasting, This was the responsibility of the groom to provide food and drink for everyone who came. And to fail in this would be a huge social blunder that would never be forgotten. All those attending the wedding feast would come bringing gifts for the bride and the groom. And they gave their gifts with an expectation that they would receive plenty of food and drink in return for their gift. So much so that history tells us that the groom's failure to provide sufficient food and wine for his guests could literally open him up to a lawsuit (laughs) where he might have to return up to half of the wedding gifts to people who felt cheated. Imagine the pressure. And it's in the middle of such festivities that we find Christ on this occasion dining and celebrating this new marriage. 
In being here at this wedding, Christ is celebrating an institution that he created and is thereby, by his mere presence, manifesting something of his glory. But this is not all that he does in this passage, which brings us to the second act of Jesus, wherein he beautifully reveals his glory as a Messiah who is so worthy of our trust. Let's word it this way. He declines. He declines the opportunity to perform a public miracle at this wedding. He declines the opportunity to perform a public miracle at this wedding. Observe what the text says in verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The fact that the wine had run out was probably not observable to everyone just yet, but the servants would have known. And we see in verse 3 that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is aware of the problem, perhaps because she was assisting with the serving on some level. We can surmise that the groom would have been notified that the wine was running out. So no doubt everyone who knows that the wine is running out and now has run out is all in a stir about this problem that will become known to all of the guests very soon. And they have to know that when the news of this hits the fan, the guests will not be happy. Wine was one of the key staples for a feast and was almost more important than the food. The rabbis of this day used to say, without wine, there is no joy. And that will be the case when the guests at this wedding discover that they have run out of wine. When you think of the wine in this passage, you should understand that it was fermented drink but less so than our modern wines are. D.A. Carson says it this way, wine in the ancient world was diluted with water to between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength such that it was something less strong than American beer, unquote. That said, the wine was quite tasty, and it gladdened the heart and made every occasion more joyous. On this occasion here, aside from frustrating the guests, running out of food or wine for a wedding feast would bring serious social embarrassment to the groom and to his family, which means that the groom and his family here in John 2 are on the verge of a terrible humiliation which requires some kind of emergency intervention right away. And the mother of Jesus, here in verse 3, takes action to address the problem, and she knows exactly who to present this problem to. Notice what happens in verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, on the surface, it seems that Mary is merely informing Jesus of the fact that they have run out of wine, for all she says is they have run out of wine. But Jesus is on to Mary right away, and he knows that there is clearly an expectation 
embodied in her announcement. And we men can take a lesson from Jesus here. For example, men, when a wife says, the trash can is full, why is she saying that to you? Uh, Is she just giving you information? Or is there a request embodied in that information? You'd better know that there is a request inside her announcement, and that request is to do something about it. Amen? Um, A wife may say to you, husband, my neck and shoulders are feeling really stiff. And what does she mean by that? Is she sharing that with you merely for information's sake so that you can duly note that in the medical journal that you are keeping on your wife? No, that statement is an invitation. It is information that embodies a request for you to do something about it. And the same thing is happening here in John 2. Mary turns to Jesus and said, they have no wine. And implied in her statement is a request for Jesus to do something about it. In fact, Jesus' response reveals that he understands very clearly her statement to embody a request that he not only do something about it, but that he do something about it in a public and messianic way. Basically, here's what Mary is saying. Jesus, they have run out of wine. I'd like for you to do something about it in a way that shows everyone here that you are the Messiah. That's what she's saying. That's how Jesus interprets what she is saying. Now, before you fault Mary for what she is doing here, imagine what you would do if you had the Messiah for your own son. Jesus has come of age. He's gathered his first five disciples to himself, who each believe him to be the Messiah. The Spirit of God has come upon him. John the Baptist has declared him to be the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. Yet here is that Jesus at this wedding at Cana, and everyone is treating him like an average Joe. Wouldn't you be anxious for your son to show everyone who he really is? Also, if Jesus is truly the Messiah who will usher in an age of an abundance of wine, as the Old Testament prophesies, And here he is on the verge of his public ministry, and he's at a wedding where they run out of wine. In the mind of Mary, that's not a good look for Jesus. Jesus can really help everyone at this wedding to connect the dots and realize that he is the Messiah if he would just do a public miracle here. Keep in mind also that Mary's claim to have had a virgin-born son has been viewed with suspicion by many over the last 30 years of her life. Imagine her eagerness for vindication. Imagine how long this 30-year wait has been for her. Imagine the vindication that she could receive if Jesus would just embrace this opportunity 
to show himself as the Messiah by performing some public miracle here at this wedding. In her mind, Mary has this all figured out. This is the moment for Jesus to show himself as the Messiah to everyone who is gathered at this wedding. But observe what Jesus does in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. We have to take a little bit of time with Jesus' words here because on the surface, his words sound disrespectful to us in our culture today. First of all, Jesus calls his mother woman. And kids, I would suggest in the strongest terms that you never call your mother that. In fact, I remember when I was a kid responding to my mom in frustration. I was probably about eight years old, and I said, all right, lady. (laughs) And I'll spare you the details of what uh, happened, but from her reaction, I learned to never refer to my mom as lady again, and I never did. As for what Jesus is doing here in calling her woman, he's not being disrespectful, but he is being respectfully distant. Some suggest that our word ma'am captures the vibe of what Jesus is saying here. It's loving and respectful, but a little more distant than the way a son would normally speak to his mom. Essentially, Jesus is alerting Mary to the fact that his and Mary's relationship is going to have to change from this point forward. She has been his mother and no doubt an excellent mother, but she will not be able to relate to him as she once did, especially to the point of directing him in how to do his ministry as a Messiah, a change has occurred as Jesus is embarking on his public ministry, and in the days to come, he will be directed by his Father in heaven as he engages in his ministry, not by his mother on earth. Does that make sense? Look again at verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? The Greek expression that is translated, what do I have to do with you, is literally what to me and to you. What to me and to you. This phrase is found in various places in the Bible, and in some contexts it can be spoken harshly, but in other contexts it could be spoken gently. But even when it is spoken gently, the phrase almost always conveys a difference of agenda between two parties. And that's what Jesus, I think, is conveying here. Basically, Jesus is saying to Mary, what do you and I have in common as far as the matter at hand is concerned? Understood in this way, Jesus is addressing the fact that his and Mary's agenda is not exactly the same here. Jesus' real meaning becomes clear when he says to Mary at the end of verse 4, My hour has not yet come. And what he means by this is the hour of my public self-revelation as the Messiah to all people 
has not yet come. Now, if we're not careful, we can get really confused at this point of the story. If you understand Mary to be wanting Jesus simply to do a miracle, and you take Jesus' words to her as indicating that he did not want to do a miracle, then how do you explain why Jesus turns around and does a miracle? It seems that one minute Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come, and then in the next minute, he turns around and does the miracle. So what is going on here? Well, here, I think, is the key to understanding what's happening. Mary is suggesting that Jesus do a public miracle that everyone at the wedding would see. And Jesus is responding by saying, my hour to do a public miracle and to manifest my messiahship through that public miracle has not yet come. This is why I think Mary responds the way that she does in the next verse. She doesn't take Jesus' words to mean that he won't do a miracle. She takes his words to mean that he won't be doing a public miracle, and she's okay with that, which leads us to the third act of Jesus wherein he beautifully reveals his glory as a Messiah who is worthy of our trust. Number three, he performs a miracle in a behind-the-scenes fashion. He performs a miracle in a behind-the-scenes fashion. Observe what the text says in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. This is not Mary ignoring what Jesus just said. This is not Mary being petulant and ignoring the words of Jesus. This is Mary recognizing that Jesus is going to do something to remedy the situation only in a non-public way. Now take a moment to think about the dilemma that Jesus is in and why it is that he would want to think twice about doing a public miracle on this occasion. If Jesus makes this miracle obvious and public, he would have addressed the need for more wine, but in the process, he would have humiliated the groom. The public miracle would have made Jesus look really good and shown him to be the Messiah, but it would have left the groom and his family looking very bad. When you think about it, you realize that it would have been thoughtless for Jesus to make this wedding all about the groom's failure and all about his miracle to fix it. And Jesus does not want to do that. So he chooses here to do a miracle on the down low. And Mary seems to know this. So she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And she has complete trust in Jesus to handle the situation from here. Now, before we actually see what Jesus does, let me ask you a question. What would you have done in this situation? If you were the Messiah... And you knew that you could miraculously supply the wine, would you have done it in a way that drew attention to yourself? 
would you have stood up before all those gathered at this feast and said, ladies and gentlemen, it has come to my attention that they have run out of wine. In fact, please look closely and notice that, yes, all the wine is gone. Not a drop is left because evidently (laughs) the groom failed to provide enough wine for this wedding feast. But now watch me as I perform a miracle so that you will know that I am the Messiah. Some of us would have done that. But Jesus does not do this. Observe what he does in verses 6 and 7. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. These are huge water pots. Jesus said to them, speaking about the servants, he said to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Let's stop here for a moment. These water pots were here on this occasion to ensure that everyone at this wedding feast could wash their hands with water from these jars and be considered religiously clean. As the guests would have arrived, water from these water pots would have been poured over their hands in a certain manner to ensure that they were clean of all ceremonial and religious defilement. And keep in mind that there was nothing in the Bible that required such water pots for cleansing before a meal. Write down the reference, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. According to Mark 7, 1 through 4, this would be an example of the traditions of men being added to the law. So it could be that Jesus is showing a disdain for these water pots of purification by repurposing them to serve as containers of the wine that he is going to provide, which in his mind is a better use of these pots. It's also likely that Jesus chooses these water pots because they were so huge and he plans to provide a lot. Clearly, Jesus wants to do more than provide a gallon or two of wine. He wants to provide as much as 120 to 180 gallons of worth of wine with each of the six water pots containing 20 to 30 gallons each. Imagine that. As they say, go big or go home. And Jesus is going big here, providing possibly as much as 180 gallons of wine, which will easily outlast this wedding banquet and serve as a very nice wedding gift for this couple to start off their married life with. Well, the servants do as Jesus tells them to do, and they fill up the water pots with water. In fact, at the end of verse 7, we are told that they filled them up to the brim, And this sets us up for the fourth act of Jesus, wherein he beautifully reveals his glory as a Messiah who is worthy of our trust. Number four, this is amazing to me. He lets the groom receive the praise for what he himself had provided. He lets the groom receive the praise for what he, Jesus, himself had provided. 
Observe what the text says in verses 8 and 9. It says, And he said to them, speaking to the servants, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So draw water out of these water pots now. Take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. So they did what Jesus said, and they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. So they fill these pots up all the way to the brim. No way anything could be added. And then miraculously, that water was turned into wine, and they scoop that out of the water pots, bring it to the head waiter who had no idea where the wine had come from. The head waiter here is the banquet master, the master of ceremonies for this occasion. John tells us he didn't know where this wine came from. He had no clue that something miraculous has just happened. The servants knew, but they seemed to know not to tell him. Again, if word got out at this ceremony that Jesus did this miracle, it would have humiliated the groom. And this is precisely the outcome that Jesus right now is wanting to avoid. But I love the fact that in verse 8, Jesus speaks to the servants and says to them, draw out, you draw out now and take it to the head waiter. I love the fact that Jesus does not insist on being the one who takes the wine to the head waiter in order to make sure that the head waiter knew that this wine had come from him. No, he gives the servants the privilege of carrying this miracle wine to this banquet master. And evidently, the master of ceremonies takes a drink of this wine. He tastes it. And then look at the very end of verse 9 and then end of verse 10 as we reach the crescendo of this story. It says at the end of verse 9, the head waiter called the bridegroom, verse 10, and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. What this head waiter describes here in verse 10 was standard practice in this day. You serve the best wine first and then bring out the inferior stuff later, assuming that most people would better remember what the wine tasted like at the outset. But this head waiter calls the bridegroom over to himself and pays him publicly an amazing compliment. He's basically in front of everyone gathered here saying to the groom, you are not like other men. You are different, sir. You are a cut above all other grooms for you have not behaved as other grooms behave. You have kept the good wine until now. Here's what's astonishing to me. Jesus did many miracles throughout his years of public ministry, so many that the Apostle John said the world itself could not contain the books that could be written of all that Jesus did. But of all of his miracles recorded in the Gospels, this miracle here is the only miracle that Jesus ever did. 
in which he intentionally wanted someone else to get the credit for the good thing that Jesus did. Jesus does this miracle, and he turns water into really good wine. And the next thing that happens is that the groom is getting kudos for something Jesus did. How would you have responded if you were Jesus in this situation? And you hear this groom getting credit for something that you did. You do some great miracle that saves this groom a huge embarrassment. And now you're hearing the groom being praised for something you accomplished. If it were me, I would have wanted so badly to stand up and talk to the head waiter and say, actually, I did that. Me, me, I I did that. And you're mistaken, by the way, about this groom. He didn't provide enough wine, so they ran out. But I fixed the problem, being the Messiah and all. That's probably what I would have done. Some of us would have been so tempted to respond by throwing this groom under the bus to enhance our own reputation at his expense. And if anyone had the right to do this, Jesus did, right? But there's no indication that Jesus does this at all, revealing to us and to his disciples how secure he is in himself. There's every indication that when Jesus hears this head waiter praising the groom, Jesus was happy. Although I'm sure his disciples were experiencing a mixture of wonder and frustration. Jesus has just performed an astounding miracle in service to this groom. And he just sits there while this groom gets complimented for what Jesus himself did. And Jesus is cool with that. Wow. And here's what's crazy. If John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 was a play, the curtains would close as soon as the head waiter compliments the groom. The story's over, leaving us with no information about how the groom responded to the compliment or about what everyone else thought about the wine. The story simply ends with a hapless groom being complimented for something that Jesus did. So the curtains close, and then the Apostle John walks out on stage and says to all of us in verse 11, look at the text, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As it turns out, this was a miracle that Jesus performed for the benefit of his five disciples who were with him on this occasion. And he performs the miracle in a quiet way, characterized by humility and self-restraint. He performs it in a way that saved the groom's reputation. And he provides so much wine that it will last long beyond this wedding leaving his disciples looking at Jesus now and saying to themselves, this is the one I believe in. 
And he is the one that you ought to believe in as well. That's part of why John tells us this story about Jesus manifesting his glory at this wedding in Cana. We should all find it striking that Jesus would condescend to choose this as the venue for his first sign miracle. This is God in the flesh. And he didn't choose to display his glory first at the temple in Jerusalem or at the emperor's palace in Rome. Instead, Christ chooses to reveal his glory first in an impoverished village of Cana, nestled away in an obscure corner of Galilee, helping out a hapless groom who had run out of wine for his wedding guest. What kind of Messiah is this? Elon Musk has been in the news a lot over the last week or two. I read this week where Elon Musk feels driven to send rockets into outer space so that humans can one day not only make it into space, but even beyond our solar system. And here's what drives him in his quest. He said, let's get out there and find out what the universe is all about. How did we get here? What is the meaning of life? Those are great questions that Elon Musk is asking but do we really need to spend billions of dollars to go into space to find the answers to those questions? The Apostle John would tell us we don't have to go into outer space to figure out the meaning of life because God has come from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he showed up at a wedding in Cana and turned water into wine and manifested his glory there. And John says that was just the beginning of the signs that Jesus performed that John is going to be telling us about in his gospel. And then Jesus, as we've been singing about this morning, was crucified. And then the greatest sign of all, he was raised from the dead just as he predicted he would do. So he was crucified. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. He does the miracles that he does when he was on earth. And you still feel like you need to send rockets into outer space to figure out the meaning of life? God has been so gracious in coming to earth in the person of Jesus and revealing to us the meaning of life. If you want to know the meaning of life, look to Jesus. There's a number of things we could say about what we've seen in our passage today. For starters, uh, this story um, has all the earmarks of genuine history. Reynolds Price is an English professor at Duke University, and he wrote a translation of John's Gospel uh, back in 1997, and in his preface to John's gospel, 
Reynolds expresses his belief that this particular miracle of Jesus recorded in our passage today is genuine history. Listen to his reasoning. He says, and I quote, It seems unlikely that John would describe such a homely feat unless he had been present and convinced of its actual occurrence. If not, why invent for the inaugural sign of Jesus' great career a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight? Yet amazingly, we see the greatness of Christ in his willingness to do this miracle in order to save the groom from social embarrassment. It's amazing to me that Jesus viewed that as important enough to him to warrant doing a miracle, but it shows us that his heart is good. And it shows us that if we trust him, our reputations are safe in his hands. Another thing we learn from this account is that Jesus is powerful. He has complete power over the natural elements. We've already learned in John chapter 1, verse 3, that all things have come into being by him. He's the creator of all things. So it should not be surprising that this one who created all things could easily turn water into wine just like that. In fact, C.S. Lewis talks about this miracle in one of his books and talks about the fact that through natural processes, God is always turning water into wine. God takes the water that falls from the clouds in the form of rain. He sends that water into the earth and then up through the roots of a vineyard, supplying juice to the grapes and wine ultimately to the growers. This is a natural process that takes many weeks and even years. And Jesus makes that happen all over the world every day, turning water into wine. And the only miracle, C.S. Lewis says, that Jesus is really doing here in John 2 is he's just speeding up the process and skipping a few steps. But he can do that. He's the creator, you know. Another thing we observe in our story today is that Jesus has no trouble transforming anything that he wishes to transform from one thing into another. And here's what I want to leave you with this morning. If Jesus can turn water into wine, imagine what he can do with you. I personally would have loved to have been at this wedding in Cana and witness this miracle with my own eyes. That would have been really something special. But as a pastor, I've seen Jesus do greater miracles than this, and I know you have too. I've seen Jesus turn sinners into saints. I've seen Jesus take immoral persons and fornicators and turn them into devoted lovers of Jesus and devoted lovers of a spouse. I've seen Jesus take proud and angry people and turn them into humble confessors of their own sins. I've seen Jesus turn drunkards into responsible husbands and fathers. 
I've seen men who used to take their wages and consume those wages on their addiction to alcohol. And I've seen Jesus rescue these men from such bondage and change them into men who use their money now to furnish their homes and provide for their families. So yes, I can speak as other pastors have spoken and say that I've literally seen Jesus turn wine into furniture. Speaking of Jesus' power to transform, I was just reading this week the testimony of one of our church members. His testimony starts off with him describing himself during his teen years as, listen to this, very rebellious, deeply involved in taking drugs, immorality, stealing, bullying, vandalism, and lying to my parents, overall living selfishly and hurting lots of people, unquote. That's how Dr. Rod Foist's testimony begins. But Christ saved Rod at the age of 19 and transformed him into one of the saintliest men who have ever graced our church. And he passed away two weeks ago in Virginia with joy and thanksgiving in his heart for his Savior Jesus Christ. And Rod would shout from heaven to all of us today and say, Jesus has no trouble turning water into wine and has no trouble turning saints. I'm sorry, let's get this right. (laughs) And no trouble turning sinners into saints. Amen. And he can do the same in your life as well. Finally, we learn something in our passage today about the kind of rescuer that Jesus is. In this passage, we not only see Jesus saving a wedding, but we also see him rescuing a groom from the judgment of others that the groom probably deserved. Perhaps this groom was stingy, and made poor decisions and didn't provide enough wine for everyone like he should have. Or perhaps this groom was just poor and he didn't have the resources to provide enough wine for everyone. Either way, in this passage, Jesus covers for this groom's failure and allows the good miracle that he performed to be credited to this groom's account. I can just imagine how this groom would have spoken about what Jesus did in the years that followed, telling people, Jesus covered for one of the biggest mistakes of my life and then did something wonderful that I got the credit for. That's actually my testimony. And it's the testimony of many of us in this room For the essence of the gospel, the essence of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came into this world and he succeeded where we failed. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are the ones who have run out of wine. 
We are the ones whose righteousness has come up empty. Our own righteousness has given out. And we all deserve to stand before God one day and be judged by Him for every failure and sin. But where we have fallen short, Jesus succeeded. He came into this world and never fell short of the glory of God. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. And then he took the judgment of our failure onto himself, dying on the cross as if our failure was his. And while dying on the cross, he shed his blood to provide atonement for our sins. And when we believe in Jesus, he not only forgives us of our sins, but he takes all of his righteous acts, including this good deed that he does here in John 2. He takes all the righteous acts that he performed and allows those righteous acts to be credited to our account as if we did those things. And one day, those of us who have believed in Jesus, we're going to receive praise from God for his righteousness that we are now clothed with. If you're here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus, I urge you to come to Jesus today and to believe in him to call upon his name. I, I urge you to come to Jesus today and say, Jesus, I, I have no righteousness. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I have no righteousness to bring to God. And then call upon his name to forgive you of your sins and to give you his righteousness, and he will happily do that. And if you do believe in him today, one day you will stand before God at the judgment and God will praise you for the perfect righteousness that Jesus has credited to your account. And Jesus will smile at the praise that comes to you from God and he will consider that his greatest miracle of all. What is not to love about a Savior like this? A Savior who was willing to do his very first miracle to save a groom from humiliation and to save a wedding, yet who three years later was willing to suffer the ultimate humiliation of the cross in order to save those who believe in him and to bring about the ultimate wedding feast with his people in the age to come. What is not to love about a Savior like this? And how can you live one more hour apart from one so beautiful as this? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are beautiful beyond description. You are wise with an unsearchable wisdom for you in this moment to not only do a miracle, but how you chose to do this miracle 
you factored in everything that one should factor in and you did a miracle beautifully and you displayed beautiful nuances of your great glory leaving your disciples seated beside you believing in you all the more and being able to sit with them at the table today and witness afresh your doing of this miracle causes many of us in this room to believe in you all the more. And I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here today that has never believed in you, that what they have seen of your glory today would turn their hearts towards you and cause them to believe in you or at least to take a genuine interest in what else is revealed in this gospel. What does the rest of the gospel of John say about this one? And perhaps, Lord, that they would join us as we continue our journey through this amazing gospel of John in the weeks to come and behold you with an open heart, allowing their hearts to truly come to know you. You're a good Savior, Lord. We're so thankful for all that you did, namely your death and your resurrection. And we're so blessed to be here on this Easter Sunday, Lord, gazing at you. We love you, and we love you, Lord, because you first loved us so beautifully. And we give our hearts to you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,